A little over 30 years ago, my mother, a woman in her late 30s, worried about the future of her three young children. And although she had been recently diagnosed with breast cancer, her biggest worry at the time was who would care for her children, who would comb their curly hair, who would feed them, where they would live, whether they would stay together, and who would house them. This mattered to her because she wanted her kids together. She wanted her kids placed with someone that would understand their primary language, their culture. She wanted her kids with someone who looked like them, with someone who prayed like them, someone who understood them. And even though she didn't know it then, her oldest sister, my aunt, would eventually adopt us through kinship placement. So thankfully, my siblings and I were raised in a loving and culturally safe environment. This, however, is not the good fortune for many Indian children that are routinely placed outside of non-Indian families. This year marks 68 years since the passing of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or as we often call it, ICWA, the federal law that was passed in 1978 to keep Indian children with Indian families. It was passed in response to compelling evidence of the high number of Indian children that were being removed from their families by public and private agency and placed in non-Indian families. Prior to the passage of ICWA, approximately 75 to 80% of Indian families living on reservations lost at least one child to the foster care system. This year, ICWA will also be challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court in the high-profile case Bracken versus Holland. The repercussions of this ruling will be felt far beyond this one family and encourages us to look deeply at how our work supports the rights of families of colors to be self-determining. As the news about this case unfolds in the coming weeks, we hope this episode will help you connect the dodge to what is happening in your communities and explore partnerships that can expand your understanding of the needs of Indigenous families, as well as the scope of your services. Thank you for listening, and please look for our bonus Equit episode airing later this month for tangible ways on how you can support Indigenous children, families, and communities. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these episodes, we will be speaking with leaders and activists in the work to end violence against children and their families. In particular, we explore the many ways that systems can be transformed in order to provide community support to adult and child survivors. We prioritize guidance that advances equity, and we look at the barriers to improved outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by systems and institutions and a step towards support that center survivors, their families, and their communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these episodes to engage in discussion in your own organizations and communities. We look forward to getting your stories about such efforts. I'm your host, Wendy Mota. Let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, depending on where you are. We are so excited 
to have two uh, colleagues, two experts, two strong voices in the topic that we're going to be discussing today. Our topic uh, for this episode of The Pivot is we rebuke this Western way of doing things. And I would like to take a moment to welcome both Melissa and Anne and ask them to please introduce themselves. And um, Anne, if you can start us off, please. Good afternoon. I'm Anne Haynes Holy Eagle. I'm an Indian advocate at the Equal Law Center here in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I'm also the founder of the Wolves Den. Happy to be here. Thank you, Anne. Melissa? And good morning or afternoon. I'm Melissa Sampson Greer. I am a member of the Yakima Nation, a mother. And in my daytime job, I work for the Oregon Department of Human Services. Thank you both Melissa and Anne again for being here. So I already um, kind of started giving some hints of, on what it is that we're gonna talk about, rebuking Western ways of doing things. And very specifically, we're going to be talking about um, practices and policies that have caused real harm uh, to indigenous communities and families in our country. And I think that if it's okay with the both of you, I'd like to have us start setting or doing some context setting historically. So we, we know that in 1978, the Indian Child Welfare Act is passed, right? And so unfortunately, right, there's still a lot of folks in the field of child welfare, social services, human services, domestic violence that don't really understand why that came to be. I'm wondering, excuse me, Missy, if you can tell us a little bit about what happens before ICWA. Why did we need to, to pass that act in 1978? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the key pieces when we're talking about systems and system change that we often neglect to, to really address or even acknowledge is the history. And the history of our Native peoples in the United States is not pretty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's actually very devastating. And in, as we talk more today, we'll start to see the impacts that the history really has had on today. But as we're beginning in thinking about even just the first days of colonization and what really has happened with our people with death and disease. And as systems began to be built, the ultimate goal was genocide and killing off all of our people so that all of the land could be taken. Mm -hmm. And and so even when you're talking about systems, where do you find the first language written around our native peoples? And, and we just came um, and had the Independence Day. And so as you're thinking about things like Independence Day, for those of us who are tribal peoples, we look at it and sort of even have to giggle because it's so crazy to think, even thinking about the Declaration of Independence, we're listed as merciless savages. And, and so those first reports and the first record of who we really were as a people has to be acknowledged and understood. Mm -hmm. We were oftentimes left off of other 
other legislation, federal, you know, documents, all of those things, because the goal was genocide. Mm-hmm. And, and so we weren't included in those pieces. When we continued to thrive and continued to, um, you know, try to find a way of life for ourselves, then the next stage was relocation. And it was forcibly removing our Native people from our traditional lands and moving us to just types of places that we had to go to, which are now called our reservation. And the treks that our people had to make and the the number of, of elders and children and women that were lost along those treks. It, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, those are the types of things we need to be talking about. Yeah. And even after relocation, then transitioning to the boarding school era and coming and stealing our children away from the families that we know and that those are the only people that they know and stripping us of our language and our culture, having forced religion placed upon us, the cutting of our hair. And we hear about things like kill the Indian and save the child. Mm -hmm. And those things continue on today. And those really were the pieces that were the stepping stones to why are we needing ICWA? Because because as as systems, they believed that they knew what was best for our children. And so even with the boarding school era, then we go into forcibly taking our children and putting them up for adoption, selling them for, you know, 10 cents, whatever the cost was. And at such an astonishing rate that we have so much loss and so much trauma to our families and our tribal communities that even to, to today, so many of our Native peoples are trying to come back and start their healing process from being a part of that adoption era. Right. And so these are all things that we have to acknowledge happened to understand why ICWA. Yeah. Why was it necessary? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melissa. This is so powerful, your your words and your, uh, you know, context and information that you're sharing with us. And, um, so much, right? So much in, in, in your statement. I'm wondering, right? It's like, I hear you speak and it's like, okay, so there was a law established in 1978. Sounds like it was a Band-Aid approach. There's no power behind it. There's no accountability. I'm wondering, Anne, if you could talk a little bit about the fact that there's so much still going on, right? So this, this law kind of Band-Aid approach happens can you tell us, Anne, a little bit about what are some of the things that Indigenous communities and Indigenous families are still experiencing? What are some of the ongoing trauma that is still taking place? Sure. Well, I can speak to Minnesota, where I live. The numbers of removals of Indian children are 22 times higher or more likely than their white counterpart. So most interactions with the system that is designed for families in need of protection or services are targeted at our people. And so with that, the documentation only supports why there's a threat against 
ICWA being removed or, you know, that that's going away through the Supreme Court because they have 50 plus years of documentation to prove against our our families that ICWA doesn't work. But what they're not recording is the accountability of these systems. Mm -hmm. And so for you to just say that this isn't working because look, these families aren't, aren't healing or they're not being reunified, which is the exact reason for ICWA is family preservation and reunification. But if you don't apply those techniques to the workers and those involved with our families, then we will never have the outcomes that are desired. But we also need to recognize that we're not holding anyone accountable to measure the outcomes or to hold systems, you know, accountable and sanction those, those very systems that are failing our people. We are sovereign people. We shouldn't even be in the situation that we're in. This should Uh be nation to nation. Mm-hmm. We don't let Canada come over here and tell us what to do, but That's we, right. uh, you know, so there's a lot of um, a lot of work to do in revitalizing our people. I feel like we already like I feel like I already feel like we need a part two to this conversation, but I'm gonna leave that alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it sounds when when I'm listening to you, Anne, it's like, yeah, okay, you recognize what you did, you have said out loud the inequities right but it's almost like listening to you it's like yes in addition to this recognition what else so i guess this question is you know if if you can both take just maybe 45 seconds to answer this following question in addition to recognizing the harm that's being caused what else would you say is missing from this conversation I would say the truth and the understanding of the harm that's been caused before you can reconcile. Um, and you need to find the truth and then repair the, the damage. Yeah. Thank you. Melissa, what would you say to that? What's missing? The accountability. As I think about ICWA, and it clearly outlines the you know active efforts to prevent removal. It outlines preserving cultural tradition and placement preferences. And we're not seeing that across the child welfare system. We're seeing the exact opposite. We're seeing disproportionately we're overrepresented. We're seeing disparities of our kids after they come into care throughout the life of their, of their cases. And so the accountability, even with federal legislation, it's never been there. And in states across the nation are failing our Native children. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's like, we can zoom in. We're failing kids, right? We're failing families. We're actually doing the opposite of what we at least set out or said verbally that we want to do. So thank you both for, for your candidates in that. And I think, you know, I'd like to move, we have about, you know, just like 12 minutes left, right? But there's two more questions that I I hope we can get to. The first one is, so given that there was a quote-unquote plan, there was a recognition, there's legislation that is actually, that has has actually been enacted, quote-unquote, what is best practice, right? Like that's a very mainstream term, but what does it really look like? What, What can it really look like to do work that's meaningful? In, for Indigenous families, women, communities. I I know, Anne, you have a lot to say because you're 
spearheading um, this, and I'm going to actually just speak on this in a second, but you're spearheading wonderful work that really means something because it's created for you by you. I just remembered, I don't know why. I, do you guys remember in the 90s, the early 2000s, FUBU? <laughs> so corny. <laughs> but it's like for us, by us, right? So it's like just grabbing that and making sense as it applies to, right, offsetting harmful policy that was for generations the way to do things, right? Can you talk to us, Anna, a little bit about Wolfstead and what you are aiming or wanting to accomplish? Yeah, first I want to answer what you said. What can the systems do? Right. Um, and I want to answer, like, keep your hands off our children. That's what you yeah. can start with. But since, yeah. until we get there, I worked in opiate replacement therapy for okay. many years. And that's where I saw the need. Um, although the epidemic hits all people, we saw such a high number of Indigenous women struggling with homelessness, with being part of the system, child removal. And myself and my uh, co-founder, Keandra Yarborough, designed the Wolves Den. It's a housing program for Native women that struggle with housing instability and addiction. And it was our thought, and it is our thought, as it is the revitalization of our people, we're not the only ones that have this thought, but it provoked us to think what could we do to contribute to our people, and that is a housing model that re-indigenizes us, if you will, bringing back our traditional values, our seven grandfather teachings, but also learning the skills that we had as a people before contact. So gardening, beading, uh, star quilts, you know, learning the language, the drum, making drum, dance, just all of the things that we used as a way of life. We consider that survival now because there is this act of genocide that continues. And so that's what I want to be part of the change that I want to see. And again, systems have to be involved because that's where the funding yeah. will come from. But yeah. that is, that's where I'm at with it today. Thank you, Anne. And, um, and you know, I hear you say survival, and I've heard our colleague, Lana, which I think both of you know, say survival is resilience, right? Like, that's, that's how people live. Like, it's not just the everyday. This is really how we function, right? How we cope, how we get through stuff in life. And so I love everything you just said, Anne. You know, um, as we start wrapping up. I have one last question for both of you and maybe Missy, you can start us off. Like there, we've talked about recognition, truth telling, understanding. Um, and I love what you said, keep your hands off our kids. Like it doesn't get more real or more blunt than that. And it is what needs to happen. Right. Um, and when I'm, you know, thinking about our listeners, a nationwide audience, whoever is listening to this podcast, I'm inviting you both to think about what are one or two things that organizations, that practitioners, that advocates can do in this whole mind frame of like rebuking and offsetting some of the messed up, right? The really messed up, really damaging and harmful practices that have been unfortunately, the status quo, right, in a lot of the systems. So what's one or two actions that you would recommend some of these 
organizations start thinking about and considering? I think for me, Wendy, it really is that shift of power, right? The shift of power in planning, in decision making, when we are um, can, when we are policing and removing our children. And we've been so conditioned within within the systems that we know what's best for children and families, and we don't. And and so that shift of power, I think, going back to even the Wolfston, is is giving resources to the community to be able to build their infrastructures to serve the children and families within our own communities, mm-hmm. and and staying true to who we are as a people. Um, you know, I think we have this tendency within systems to think we we know what's best, and we've got to shift away from that and start hearing community voice and supporting community to to do the work that we do, which is really what true prevention is, right? Is that community is going to wrap around each one of our children and families, and and we know. I love that. Like wrap when you said that wrap around, I literally felt like the community coming around, like literally hugging and making it better. Thank you, Melissa. And any any thoughts on like maybe one or two actions? Well, I said the one action, which is keep your hands off our <laughs> number one. <laughs> the second action. So I'll is, repeat myself. <laughs> right. The second action is you could buy me a building for the Wolves Den. Um, you could, you know, man, be a property manager to that building. No, um, no, but seriously, money, right? Like, yeah, we need yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, we and you know, housing isn't the easiest thing to do because there's a lot that comes with it. So the fact that you have people willing mm-hmm. to get caught up in all of that you know family members can barely live together we trying to put some grown women together we willing to do that be for the collective good of our people my ultimate goal is inner tribal um reconciliation and coming as a full you know force that we're not all just separate bands and separate separate tribes but that we are you know of the caretakers of this earth and so we need to come together in that way but um i i guess lastly it would just be um um getting to know the population you know how can you manage folks you don't know anything about and you have to understand you know we our children are our greatest resource because they are our future and so if you can't appreciate the families that you're working with you know i mean that's just basic Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. um, you get to know your clientele. So that would be my biggest thing is the back to accountability, but also training and education and understanding the Mm -hmm. folks, people's homes you're walking into. Yeah. Yeah. And lead with your heart. So, yeah, I, um, I feel like we need part two and three (laughs) of this. And as we wrap up, I really, on behalf of futures, you know, our producer, uh, soon to be our colleague and the nation really, because that's, who the audience is. I want to thank you for letting us be in your presence. Um, Thank you for sharing your knowledge and thank you so much for imparting hope. Like sometimes the world seems so dark and gray, but the fact that there's people like the both of you still doing the work is encouraging personally, and I'm sure it will be to our listeners. So thank you both for being here and uh, for all you do. Thank Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.
thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you know of any work or effort happening in your organization or community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us with the information about your efforts and we will be sure to reach out to you. You can email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Again, T-H-E-P-I-V-O-T at futureswithoutviolence.org. A very special thank you to Chance Taylor for his ongoing support in editing these episodes. Until next time, and thank you again for joining us.